We are living in unprecedented times. No matter what industry you come from, we must all review, rethink, and reinvent ourselves. Are you an entrepreneur that is trying to adapt your business to the new norm? Well, you are listening to the 2020 Entrepreneur, a podcast that will motivate you and have you think outside of the box. My name is Hugo Almeida, and with over 30 years of being an entrepreneur, I am here to share and inspire you with my experiences and help invent a new you. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to a new episode of T20E World. This is Hugo here, and today I'm actually coming live to you from Battery Park in New York City. And I am excited to be here today because I have a very special guest with me, Wilson Kriegel. Wilson, say hello. Good to be here. Uh, Thank you so much, and it really is an honor and a pleasure. I'm humbled to be here with you. And today, our topic is going to be talking about principles of consistency. Why is this so important? Because in anything you do in life, in business, entrepreneurship, whatever it may be, consistency is one of the key elements of success. Again, keep it in mind, not only in your life, but in your profession. So today, it's interesting. I'm going to talk to Wilson. We're going to chat a little bit about who he is, a father, an adventurer, an elite athlete, and an amazing entrepreneur. Very interesting how we met. He is the CEO and founder of Robin. Now, most people know I love the mountain bike out in the woods. This is the greatest piece of equipment, and everybody knows I'm a tech geek. So between my friend, Willie Gavilanis, we came up in the tech world through Lucent and Avaya. He brought this vest over to me, and he said, dude, you got to try this out. Bluetooth, you could ride in the woods. You could still hear the ambience around you, the environment, anything that's coming out in front of you while still riding and listening to your music. It enables you to communicate. So I reached out to Wilson through the internet because I just wanted to tell him what a hell of a product they put out there. And that's how we met. Again, I stepped outside of the bubble, stepped outside of that comfort zone. And I felt like, you know what? Why not reach out to the CEO and founder? And that's how we met. Believe it or not, to my audience out there, this is the first time we are face to face. That's right. During COVID also. And, you know, it's been a little crazy, but we've kept in touch since the end of last year. And I've watched his daily activities on Instagram and he as well on mine. So Wilson, talk to us a little bit about you. Well, I was actually born in France and I immigrated here at 16. Wow. Started in construction. Uh, so an unusual path to where I am today uh, in my life. And, uh, and then ultimately found myself going to college and playing D1 sports, which was really a catalyst in a wide range of varieties of what made me successful in, in life. I had to go to Wall Street in the late 90s, which was fairly kind of the, the common path to yep. take. Uh, luckily for me, I was actually pretty bad at it. <laughs> uh, there was you know, n- numerous crises along the way in the 98 crisis, uh, the Asia crisis, and then the 2001, uh, September 11 as well. As, uh, and then recycled myself, if you could say so, uh, into being an entrepreneur and starting to build uh, gaming companies. And ultimately, over the past 20 years, I've been a part of building seven different startups that That's were awesome. all funded, five of which have sold, including, you know, uh, currently in the process of selling Robin. Same. Yep. Uh, only one ended up failing, and uh, one is, is a unicorn. So batting average slightly higher than the average, and awesome. 80% success rate versus 80% failure rate. But uh, I guess I was very consistent that way. <laughs> I think that's fascinating. So awesome. Listen, I know that most of your startups, and we're, we're going to dig into this a little bit more about your life and everything, And but a lot of it startups, and especially in, in the software world and some of the gaming companies you had and some of the apps that you created, they require funding and VC. I mean, that's a world in its own, and I understand that's probably an episode alone. But talk to us briefly, how complex is it to get into that world? 
I think one of the most essential aspects of funding goes back to networking. Um, and so there's two kind of critical areas in funding. One is access, and the other one is viability of a product. And so, you know, you can have access to uh, friends and family who have money. Uh, you can have access to uh, rich people who have money. Uh, you can have access to who are venture capitalists or private equity guys who do this for a living. But ultimately, what it comes down to is, is that you have, and you and your co-founder or whatever the team is, in principle, you have enough vision and drive to be able to show up at somebody's door and be willing to gamble with their money and convince them, whatever they are, in the stack of, of being willing to give sure. you money, whether they're professionals or not, to take a risk with you, to commit with you to the idea that you can build something that will create value for them and that you have certain levels of skills, expertise, motivation, willingness to commit to a relentless process of failure and successes along the way to create yield. And in principle, that is all that you're doing. You're, you're using capital to create an asset value that creates yield for somebody else's capital. Absolutely. And in the process, hopefully making money. It's only complex from the standpoint of Yes, there is a lot of you know terms and terminologies around the process of fundraising, but really it comes down to it's a human exchange. People invest in you as a human being. The term sheets are just technicalities. Sure. At the end of the day, whether it's your parents who decide to pay for your education, uh, that's where the investment starts. Like, So you, you start learning very early that there's an exchange to be made between people who believe in you and, and how they support you in that belief and your obligation and responsibility against that to commit to the work to which they invested against you for, and then deliver value for that for yourself and, and whoever supported you in that process. And so really it comes down to, can you convince people that they should trust you mm -hmm. with the vision that you have and that they should support you and that you show the attitude, the demeanor, and the relentless commitment to that obligation that you made with them. And so it, the complexity is whether or not you're good enough to sell that. That is really the only complexity is, can you make people believe? And that are you worth their money? Yeah. Everything else after that are, are more technicalities of like, do you have the good term sheet? What equity are they getting? Do you have voting rights? And, and yes, sure, that takes practice and that takes a lawyer and that takes a little bit of exposure and doing it a couple of times for you. People will make a lot of mistakes in doing that and there's not enough coaching around yeah, sure. how to stress yourself up to have the right terms in these relationships. But more than anything else, early on, it comes down to people investing in people the same way that people start trusting you to want to work for you and, and take a, a risk in terms of getting a pay cut Absolutely. or working for sweat equity, as it's known to be said. It just comes down to, you know, can you make people believe in you? Mm -hmm. And do they want to take a risk with you? And so to have that happen, then beyond that, you have to show that you're able to execute, which is most critical to them believing that you Absolutely. should give you the money. And the second is, do you have a network that gives you access to people who have money? Yeah. And so those two things could start very early on in life, right? The ability to communicate your vision, to showcase that you are hardworking, to showcase that you understand the process of execution, the process of getting outcomes, and the only really just solving problems. <laughs> you're solving your problems to why Always you trying came to figure up. It out. Yeah, you That's came right. up with an idea that solves a problem, and then pretty much every day you're solving problems trying to get there. Mm -hmm. So people have to believe in that. And it's almost that simple. Yeah. But people don't work enough at developing the skill sets that shows sure. that they have the fundamental to actually be able to prove that. You know, and somebody has to be convinced that you can do that with their money. That's fascinating. Good information, too. Thank you for sharing that. Now, one of the things for our listeners, and uh, we're going to dive into this, and, and, and you'll understand why this topic is so important, the principles of consistency. And a lot of people don't really know. If you meet Wilson here, I mean, he's just a stand-up guy, and no one knows really about his entire career, where it began, and what got him to here. I always talk in life and, and business entrepreneurship about the roller coaster ride. Everybody's familiar with my terms and when I when I always refer to that massive roller coaster ride, the ups, the downs, right? And that's just life. That's kind of what I try to prepare everybody out there for. But one of the things that was fascinating to me is when I learned about Wilson early on in his life, you know, dealing with mental health issues as a young boy, 
And now listen, it's such a topic of importance because today, thank goodness, we're all much more aware of mental health issues, right? There's nothing wrong and there's ways of dealing with it. And Wilson, it amazed me that, you know, you dealt with this, you confronted this head on and yet no medicine. You just did this somehow, you figured this out, what worked for you the best. I just wanted you to share just a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say of all the things that I've achieved, whether I'm a wealth of 1% or 1% athlete or consider myself most importantly to be a great dad my greatest success is ultimately how i've managed to deal with my mental health issues and the impact it's had on uh, my iq um, and my physical abilities i actually started experiencing depression at the age of 11 and i was suicidal by the time i was 12 unbelievable um i had some traumatic experiences you know prior to that i was also separated from my mother by the age of seven taken halfway around the world and i was a very actually gentile emotionally sensitive introverted child very emotionally attached to my mother as, as kind of my self-confidence and my sense of identity. And then ultimately through that trauma, you know, I most likely have tendencies, biological tendencies, as well as uh, personality trait tendencies that led me to be chronically depressive as well as uh, medically depressive ultimately as I was diagnosed. And those are slightly different because medical depression is diagnosed when you no longer experience any emotion. And that takes away stamina, that takes away drive, that takes away passion, that takes away your ability to experience life uh, and and interact with other people. Chronic uh, emotional depression is the highs and lows of, you know, just sadness uh, and anxiety and stress and nightmares. I actually developed and still uh, work on this day on uh, sleep trauma. And I started developing that at the age of seven or eight years old. And that carried me for over 20 plus years and 25 years of my life, which is actually in a way worse than depression itself, uh, because it's not Mm. one that you can control and so I actually never ended up having proper uh, sleeping patterns as well as uh, REM sleeps which is much more detrimental to your brain itself biologically than just uh, chronic or, or medical depression but I um I then, you know, uh, live with that. And this was an era where there's no YouTube, no. right? Where yeah. your parents yeah, just, just think you're emotional, or you're too sensitive, or you just need to toughen up. And I had a father whose upbringing was very challenging and difficult and, and tough love centric and very nature centric versus sure. nurture. Yes. And he applied that to his kids. And so I didn't necessarily have a, a structured environment. Neither of my parents got high education. My father never went to high school or college. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the structures themselves to support you educationally or emotionally weren't necessarily there even though I have the most amazing loving cherishing mother uh, you know who I'm very close to to this day and take care of but I didn't understand the fundamental issues that I had until I was in my early 20s I just thought I was very emotional very sad I probably spent 80-90% of my year on an average basis being sad crying feeling emotional and physical pain emotional pain drives to physical pain sure and so uh, that was just life yeah as I knew it I did not know anything else that being said I always had very passionate driven parents very uh, independent parents, very identity-driven parents. And so, you know, I, I, I had experienced passion and drive, and I'd seen that, and my father is a very independently successful entrepreneur, and my mother is a very passionate woman. And so I had understanding of the ability to experience things uh, in very unique ways, very very high highs, very low lows, very extremes of poverty, very extremes of wealth. And so it wasn't until my early 20s, I started seeing a psychologist. They only diagnosed me with learning disabilities. Uh, I had failed already three years of school by that point. So I actually failed out of high school, kicked out of public school, 
school, uh, which is one of the reasons why I immigrated to America from France at that point, because the schooling system no longer supported me, and so I would sure. have gone to a specialized school to be able to get back or stay in the schooling system in France. And when I came to America, I was exposed to a, a world of productivity, even in high school. You've got teams, you've got sports teams, you've got different, uh, the schooling, educational is different. So I, I had dyslexia. So in France, it's a very heavy writing, reading intensive environment. Mm-hmm. In America, it's much more of a multiple choice question environment. Um, and they teach differently for productivity much more than intellectual capital. And so you're not really taught for knowledge per se as much as tools in America. Same way they train you in sports. And so sports started becoming really critical to creating a sense of identity, a sense of self, a sense of purpose, a sense of recognition. You know, the varsity letters, the jacket, sure. all these yeah. things, right? But those don't exist in France, in Europe. And so you don't have outlets. You know, if you're stuck in the corner in France in the system, there's no outlets, there's no other venues or you know channels to take. So I always say um, coming to America was the best, smartest decision I ever made in my life and it saved my life. Um, I was suicidal probably until my mid-20s, until 2000, which was my last consideration of, of committing suicide uh, after September 11, uh, which I was actually uh, there for that. But what, what happened is in my early 20s, I was diagnosed as being nearly retarded when I took an IQ test, where I, I think I scored about 73 or 74. I think between 70 and 75 is okay. borderline retardation. Yeah. And the doctors, the psychiatrists and the doctors were like, well, you know, we know you're not, you know, this is not the issue at hand. Your emotional issues are your issues, the way your brain processes information, questions. And then they said, you know, have you ever thought about living differently? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, yeah, you know, you don't have to experience life this way. You can take medication. And I was like, well, wait, wait, wait. I don't have this. This doesn't have to be my life. And they were sure. like, no, no, it doesn't. You know, and then they lean towards medication, which is fairly standard practice in, in psychiatrists and, and in American practices. Sure. But I didn't want to take medication. I, I, I was really kind of against medication, not not vaccines, but just against pharma Sure. Uh, for mental health. I was very scared of it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know who I would be if I took it. I didn't know what would come thereafter. Sure. But the simple question of this doesn't have to be your life, you know, you could live differently was a trigger for me. And from that moment on, I didn't just try to pretend that I was happy during the day or I didn't just, you know, you create facades, you make up personas to live with other people so you don't seem like a freak. Because nobody relates to you, your parents don't understand you, you live in a little bit of a, a bubble, you're kind of constantly trying to get your water, your head above the water because you feel like you're drowning every day within your emotions, within the neurosis that you have of sadness and, and anger or fear. And, and I said, okay, well, I, I want to solve this. If this doesn't have to be me and this isn't actually me, it's just the way I'm living, the way I'm processing information, that's the way sure. my brain is computing things, why can't I rewire my brain? You know, why can I not control the way I process information, emotions in particular? You know, I actually, around that time, started reading a lot more about Buddhism and, and different kinds of successful entrepreneurs and mindsets. And I realized, like, you know, we are reacting to things all day long and reacting to our environment, our emotions. And so if you can start de- like creating a delay in, in how you experience emotions, how you process emotions you create a stopgap to how you are able to then react to your environment to yourself and what i ultimately did is i learned to compartmentalize everything in my life and also i learned to develop personas that allow me to pursue experiences and actions and productivity and i actually beat depression through action and productivity and created an identity for myself and found self-confidence and found you know friendships and found you know working environments and through uh, these identities i had a party social life identity i had my friends I had my dating life. I had the athlete, you know, and so I actually, you know, I had the working person who at that time was, was known to be quite a bit of an asshole and a jerk uh, because I had a chip on my shoulder and sure. I was less educated and I was not as smart as everybody else. And I had to compete with very smart people. And so, you know, to bully yourself around one of the ways to kind of make up for, for the insecurities that you have. But realistically, the two things that I did is I, I found a way to feel productive throughout my days. Mm-hmm. And I, I forced myself into processes 
on a constant basis and so I started hyper engaging into okay I'm going to promote and party four times a week I'm going to work out an hour and a half every day I'm going to work out 10 hours a day there was no room for my emotions and I became relentless and then some people including investors of mine and people who know me for a long time said that they're the, I'm the most relentless person I've ever met and I would say there's relentless consistency with purpose and that's what's driven my whole life relentless consistency with purpose and my purpose at that time was is, was to build the life that I wanted was to build the identity that I wanted was to become the sure. person I wanted to be but what really differentiated my process was finding personas compartmentalizing my emotions and applying my energy my emotions to things that had yield versus just drowning within the experience of emotions themselves and those principles of, of compartmentalizing which meant I could allocate my emotions which is energy into things that I could measurably output that made me feel empowered and doing that for each of these different um, personas then allow me to find myself into who I really was what I really wanted to achieve where my strengths and weaknesses were and to also become hyperactive in the world of you know very competitive environments whether it was sports or whether it was work whether it was the nightlife hanging out with celebrities I, I could be anybody I wanted to be and that overwhelmed and overrode the original operating system that I had in my mind which was my brain just controlling everything and the chaos I was experiencing and drowning experience of being depressed at all times Amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing this, Wilson. You know, it's interesting what you said because people just listen sometimes and when I share information and they're trying to figure out, listen, you do so much. How do you deal with all the stresses? How do you how do you handle everything at once? The only way I ever explained it to anybody was I don't overwhelm myself. I've always envisioned a hallway of filing cabinets. It's the only way I could explain it. And when I work, I have a many drawers that are open. And if you open the drawers, I've got folders that are all opened with a lot of sheets, a lot of paperwork, a lot of information. And those folders are the things I'm working with. But when I need to hop onto another topic, I tend to close the folder, close the drawer, open up the next drawer in the cabinet. It's the only way I can kind of explain. And that's the only way I can handle, and I have handled, the stresses in my life, deaths in my family, you know, the ups and downs of corporate America, and as well as starting, you know, different companies. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. It's the only way that I've been able to stay focused. So it's interesting what I'm it, just listening to you. Yeah, and the reality is, oddly enough, the chaos of my youth, as well as the challenge and the burden of my youth and the difficulty of it prepared me for the difficulty of startups. Sure. You know, the grind, the, the chaos. What you're doing is you're creating structure and chaos. You know, you're creating productivity and chaos. That's what startups are. It's chaos. Sure. Right? On any given day, you don't know what's happening, what will happen. VCs back out their deals. Employees quit. There's another competitor. Um, you know, the numbers that you were hoping for, they didn't come out. Like, it's chaos. And so what you're doing is you're, you're trying to create consistency and structure and chaos for productive outputs. And, you know, my success today where, and how I live my life today and the luxuries that I have and the great circumstances I find myself in now were, you know, in the making for 25, 30 years. Absolutely. Right? So I started at 15, realistically, to be challenged by the system, start working, again in construction, and all that consistency of wanting to outperform, mm -hmm. wanting to differentiate myself. But the truth is, I would not be successful without my depression. It's the challenge of having emotionally and intellectually overcome my depression that gave me the tools and the outlets mm -hmm. to pursue things like entrepreneurship, which is very chaotic and emotionally exhausting. I lived the bottom. I was <laughs> suicidal. You know, of course, I experienced stress. I experienced anxiety. Obviously, I had, you know, sleeping disorders. So it's not like that left me. You know, learning to be productive in that environment learning to do the work and the consistent work on a daily basis and to challenge myself 
allow me to be resilient enough that when things got very difficult in startups, when you get punched in the face a hundred times while you're raising money. I mean, listen, I, I got rejected a hundred times raising money from VCs before. Before you get a yes or, you know, you get a lead in your investment. It's not like there's there's an easy path. And I learned at a young age, you know, and I worked at Enron uh, and I was one of the fastest promoted guys there. And we did a spinoff called the New Power Co., which was in the consumer gas electricity. Sure. And we raised 800 million on the NICE and it was a big deal in 2000. And then the market collapsed in 2001, 2002 and energy and dot coms and telcos all got crushed. And I got crushed as well, even though I sure. quite a bit of paper I remember money. this. Yeah. yeah. September 11 happened this and that. The consistency around, you know, that moment, I ended up losing millions and millions of dollars on paper. Uh, and I was leveraged to the hill in those days. My whole sense of thinking that I had attained something, money, uh, social life, success, that I was a golden goose, that, you know, I had somehow earned the privilege to just have this life, even sure. though I worked hard for it. The, the outputs would be consistent. I was I was humbled by life in that moment where ultimately, within a very short six month thereafter, I basically was without a home, lost without everything. money, lost everything. My, and, and oddly enough, people are like, oh, well, I didn't apply for unemployment, which surprised a lot of people at that time. But I, I just never wanted to take a handout. I also never believed that I couldn't rebound. You know, even when it got tough, the resilience of wanting to believe in myself and what I wanted to achieve. And so I would go back to relentless, consistent purpose. Again, I still believe that I could be an entrepreneur. I still believe that I could, you know, prove everybody wrong. You know, I mean, the system was against me when I was a kid. My father was against me in the sense so he didn't believe I could be anything. You know, the teachers used to bring up to the board to use me as an example of what dumb was uh, in front of the other students. And so the system and the environment and my family was really an anchor. The odds were always against you. The odds were, you know, and at least that's how I experienced them, which didn't help with my mindset around depression. But, you know, I woke up every day and found a purpose. I woke up every day and told myself that I could do something even while I was depressed. And when when I lost a home and I lived on $10 a day for nearly two years. I mean, you literally went homeless at one time. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I ended up getting kicked out of my building uh, where I lived and suddenly I had no money and I, I wasn't even concerned about where I was going to sleep. I was like, well, how am I going to buy food tomorrow? Mm. Uh, and, it, you know, even though we grew up uh, depending on if it was my mother, we were pretty poor. If it was my father, we were fairly well off because he became successful. You know, being an adult and being independent and knowing that there's nobody there to help you and then now you don't know how you're going to buy food is extremely difficult emotionally to cope with. But nevertheless, uh, you know, within a year and a half, within a year of that, after working back at a retail store at seven and a half dollars an hour, <laughs> I launched my first startup in gaming. Amazing. So, you know, Amazing. I never, I never failed on my network. I never told people what happened to me. I never went asking for money for people who were part of people who perceived me to be successful originally, because ultimately nobody cares about your problem. Mm. One of the things that you have to accept in life is that you have to be self-accountable. Nobody's so, there to give you a handout. Nobody's going to go in your ass. Maybe you're lucky if you have friends and family, but quite frankly, if you're depressed or you have other financial issues or you find yourself in a really rough patch, most people either don't understand how you get there, they don't understand how your mental health works, and so the, the support is very limited. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be self-reliant. And so I think that you know it is an advantage to have had struggles in your youth. Absolutely. Uh, whether they're emotional, financial, parental, you know, I, I grew up in the projects for a period of time. I, you know, I've seen people get killed. I've seen people get, you know, beat up all the time. I used to get mugged all the time at knife points with baseball bats. And and ultimately that leads you to either to be crushed by the system or to find, you know, again, the desire to thrive. It's a lot of work and it has to be consistent because if you're not, the outcomes are never going to be very good. And so there's no easy money. There's no easy outcome. There's no cutting corners. Uh, and in today's world, I think that's an issue because everybody sees Instagram, everybody sees YouTube, everybody thinks there's a book, yeah. there's a checklist, everything. There's a bullet line, you yeah. know, of, of quotes that just gets you somewhere. But the truth is it takes a lot of work and a lot of time, a lot of, I wouldn't call it failure as, because if you're growing and you're learning through the process, they're not necessarily failure, but it, it takes a, a lot of burden and issues and challenges 
is to overcome emotionally in particular because again as you are constantly rejected or as you constantly experience things that are difficult it's easy to quit and, okay. and quitting the only thing you've done is quit on yourself Absolutely. So I think, you know, to learn to have the self-resilience, to be self-accountable to your own commitments of relentless, consistent purpose. And you know what? Like when you're young, maybe purpose is anger. It's a chip on your shoulder. It's just a number on a dollar sheet. When you're young, I don't think there's any wrong. I think as you get older, you cannot become what was driving you in your youth because if not, you lose your identity and Correct. you lose your sense of value and you lose your sense of humanity in that. If you look at all the great successful people who cannot pivot away from just making a lot of money, mm -hmm. they don't have a lot of humanity, right? They don't have a lot of real human purpose. Um, so so if you become your anger, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, then you've lost your humanity, you've lost your sense of relating, you lost your sense of empathy. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've been able to do that I think I'm very lucky to be diverse in my purposes. Um, and so when I was younger, it was security. I, I wanted financial monetary security. I didn't have that. I wanted to take care of my mom. And I was very driven by the idea that that would define me. And so I, I did everything I could to achieve that. And then thereafter, as I was always athletic and outdoorsy and physical experiences were always easier to me than intellectual challenges. You know, I'm an extreme outdoor athlete. I hike and run a lot. I do a lot of extreme skiing. And as life gone on and I made more money, I was able to do more and more of these adventures and experiences that opened me to the world. Um, one of the most amazing things about uh, entrepreneurship is that you can discover a lot of different people, culture, countries. Uh, and so I built offices in China. I built offices in Korea. I built offices in Japan. And I expanded my network drastically around the world and, and learned a lot more cultures. And that gave me a lot of more humanity. So I, as I was progressing and succeeding gradually and making more money and, and building bigger startups, I was also achieving more in my outdoor experiences and I was leveling up if you will in all aspects of my life and ultimately came the time where I was ready to be a father and I had the partner in my life that I wanted to do that with uh, and I had the full purpose that I could commit to for the rest of my life That's beautiful. Um, yeah. and that I was able to bring that into my life and it, everything didn't come at once there's a constant gradual progression and you're sure. moving the ball forward like you would on the football field you know, I always say building a startups it's like building a franchise you got to show up every day with your team at practice practice like it's a game you know everybody's got to wear the jersey right? everybody's got to commit it to the goal and the purpose that you do when you go on the on the field every day everybody's got to figure out a way to work together whether or not you like each other is irrelevant to what the purpose and the goal is respect trust in your coaches trust in the franchise owner and then you're gradually building your team you're gradually recruiting other players you're gradually getting people to come and show up because you start winning but ultimately every day you go in there to develop your skill sets your technique right your your readiness to the game and then when you go play the game you just play the game because that's what you spent two practices a day for a whole preseason and when it's time to go do your four by one you know or your four by four or it's time to play on the field like you're no longer thinking or questioning you're executing and, and and I just did a, a calendar club uh, running challenge, which is only a few thousand people have done it um, because it's a little bit you know out there. But basically, you run the same number of miles per day as, as the day of the month. So the first day you run one mile, the second day you run two miles. But when you get on day 20, you're running 20 miles. Day 21, 22, uh, 21 miles. Day 20, 22 miles. So last week you're running you know basically five marathons and an ultra marathon you're running 15 half marathons the week before and jesse itzler and, and uh, colin o'brady who I've built a little bit of a rapport with and uh, inspired me to do some of the crazy stuff that i do brought me onto this challenge and i loved it and people were like what and i was like they're like this is the most insane thing you run 465 miles in a month more importantly is you're aggregating while you're increasing sure but it all came down to executing and having a plan and being committed to that plan there was no questioning your emotions there was no questioning uh, yourself there was no pondering during the day you just went in you had a plan of when you ate when you ran how fast you ran how many miles you ran each time that you ran you know when you took your naps and then you had to deal with your kids and your job and it was planned and so the way i loved about it is that there was no thinking involved 
<laughs> there is pure execution. Either you were ready or you weren't ready to do sure. it, right? Either you were committed or you were not committed. And if you weren't committed, I'm, I'm going to try to do this. No, you don't try to do it. You just say you're going to do it. And you envision the fact that you're going to get to the end of it. And you are in the moment and you take it one step at a time and you focus on that step and, and not like, okay, oh my God, I'm going to have to do another mile. There's another day tomorrow. You don't think about tomorrow. You got to finish today. That's right. And when you are present in the moment and you're committed to that moment and you realize that it's just a moment, just like life is just a moment. And you're either going to be living that moment or you're living in the past of it or in the future of it. But you know, you just execute in the plan. And if you have worked to create plan that you believe in, then you take away a lot of the uncertainty, insecurity, emotional chaos, and, and the yield. Amazing. And listen, uh, we had talked about this earlier this past week, and I did that biathlon in yes. the mountains. And, you know, two-mile trail runs up in the mountains in Morris County, then a 10-mile mountain bike ride. But I got to tell you, that last two miles in the mountains, I had nothing in me. And it's so easy. I mean, it, and believe me when I tell you out there, I was about to quit. I had that little guy on my shoulder saying, you know what, just turn around. You did pretty good today. And I just kept thinking to myself, no, you know, persistence, it's determination, it's the consistency. I'm going to finish. I, I had to walk up part of that mountain. I had to hike down those hills. And the, the finish is the most amazing feeling of an accomplishment and that's what that's what i was so happy about I, I didn't care if i came in last i didn't care if i came in first i i just cared to finish the thing is i wanted to just give up at times sure but you can't no, i agree I, th I think people think that because you do something which they perceive as hard it must be easy for you i used to run you know 10ks every day i mean i, I was a fairly aggressive uh, fitness person and, and runner and i was running a lot uh, in my early 30s i was a national level runner one 118 half marathon time and, and people are like oh you know it must be easy i'm like no it no. hurt Every day, every day, every day, it hurt. Yeah, like it hurts. <laughs> like there's nothing about this. It's, like it's my like, thighs today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you ask David Goggins, if when he runs, you know, a Moab two forty or whatever it is, two hundred forty miles, and does it not hurt? He comes in second or first. You know, like. It hurts, uh -huh. but the, the pain is momentary. That's right. The achievement and, and the relentlessness of driving through that process and that growth experience that you're having and the result of it, you know, even if there's no medal at the end of it, there's the medal of, of what you've achieved for yourself and how that defines you as a human being, how you used your time in life. Very momentary. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make that isn't taught enough is, is how limited time is. And so how do you use that time? You know, and there's 24 hours in a day. So there's a lot of time in, in what is really a very small amount of time because ultimately you could die the next minute, the next hour, the next day. Absolutely. So there's this misconception that you have life. So true. Wilson. You have to have urgency. One mm -hmm. of the things that I always had, because I always had the negativity and, and, and the pressure of my depression, every time I could have a moment of success, every time I could have a moment of joy, I had the urgency for that. I had the urgency to try to prove myself. I had the urgency to want to feel happy. I had the urgency to want to win. And so that drives you to be excited about the work. And so you got to find joy in the work. And, and I don't mean a job. I just mean in doing the work. You sure. know, when you go to practice, you have to find joy in drill. You have to understand how it works within the process of your achievements and what you're trying to achieve. And so if you cannot appreciate the work, it gets very difficult in life in general, whether it's your relationship, whether it's parenting, whether it's your job, you know, at a regular corporation, you have to find joy in the work and understand that the work is a part of the process to lead you to your goal and your purpose. And so if you look at it that way versus a definition of uh, work as it is you in today's society, which is all oh, nine to five punching in and out to make money. No, work is just life, but work is a rewarding opportunity. And so with positive energy comes opportunity. It doesn't mean you're successful. It just means that opportunity moves you forward. And, and you need forward progression in all that you do in life, even if you have setback. So energy, uh, positive energy, having people who surround you that support your goals, they challenge you, but they support your ability to achieve that for yourself. And, and that's really critical. I don't do things, I don't want to use the term half-ass as much as without you know structure, 
without coaching, without you know uh, the work of learning. Because if you really want to experience something, you do it with people who Absolutely. have the expertise. You do it with that people that have done it, that know it, that yes. understand it, that can explain it. And so you put your ego aside, you put your insecurity aside, you put your uh, you know your, your self identity, and you say, you know what? Like I can be around people who are smarter than me. I can be around people that can teach me things. I can be around people that can coach me. I can be around people that can inspire me. None of that brings you down. Everything lifts you up. So never look at people who are equal to you. Never look at people who are below you. And I don't mean this in a in a people who make less of money as much as like if you want to be pulled forward you read books about people who have made it forward you you surround yourself with people who are ahead of you you challenge yourself with people who are better than you and you learn from that you know and and you, you realize that only through experiences and only through growth can you ultimately achieve the purposes that you aspire to in life and so you know I, for the youth of today and for the entrepreneurs it's hard great things are hard to achieve I don't care if it's in sports. I don't care if it's in your family life and your personal life. Understand that it will take time. It takes a lot of work. And you are better served in having the right people around you if you're going to do that work and having the right techniques and having the right purpose. And so the sooner you work on that and the sooner you bring yourself with the right tools, the better the outcomes are going to be. So I always look at things in relative terms of, of uh, time ratio to yield. You know, you only have so much time. So you can focus on 20 things. Yield output of that is going to be probably average at yeah. best. Or you can find areas of strength, areas of weaknesses. You can find areas that, you know, you have the most drive for. You can find areas that you know, motivate you the most. And you have to think about, you know, what gives you the highest yield. And for example, you know, we love being parents. I know you're a very dedicated father to sure. your kids as I am. I would say I spend 60 to 70% of my day focused on my kids today. That's with my awesome. partner. Uh, and it's yeah. not about being married and not married. It's just saying, okay, what makes us the happiest today? Parenting, you know, parenting our kids, True. being around our kids, creating an environment for our kids. And they grow up so grow. quick. Yes. It, time. Absolutely. Going back to time, right? So you have a limited amount of time. The time will go by. The time in the moment is momentary. Uh, and so if you're not there to see your kids grow, if you're not there to experience your kid's life with them, not your life. You lost it. Yeah. You, you do not get that back. You can you always don't. go back and work. You can always make more money. You can always get another job, but you will not get the time that you've lost with your kids once they've grown up no doubt and we have a whole episode on that as well it's just amazing because time is that one thing in life that you just can't take back I mean, once it's passed that nanosecond passes it's done it's amazing this conversation is whew, man so we're talking about wilson his career his youth dealing with mental health issues building a corporate america working at enron having that social status of wealth going bankrupt going homeless let's briefly just briefly sure. just touch upon one of your startups let's talk about pixar yeah sure pixar Pixar is an amazing app that many people probably know that are out there. It's probably got over a billion users. It's valued over a billion dollars. I know you were very instrumental in that the whole startup process. I know that you sold out of there, I believe. And uh, But talk to me a little bit about that that app. Yeah, um, we had sold OMG Pop, which did the game draw something to Zynga with, with Dan Porter. Um, and Josh Elman at Greylock, uh, one of the top tier VCs, maybe top five VCs in the Valley, um, pings me and says, hey, I, I just met this entrepreneur out of Armenia. Um, <laughs> at that time, I had done a lot of starts with foreigners, Koreans, Germans, the French, and I had European descent, you know, descendancy. So people like to ping me when there's a European founder. And he said, hey, I met this entrepreneur. I think this is another OMG pop opportunity for you. I think there's a great relationship for you to be had with this guy. It's really early. They don't have any capital. They don't have a cap table yet. And so you should meet him. And I was like, great. He's like, there's one little caveat. He's like, he's in Armenia. I was like, I'm sorry. I was like, yeah, Armenia. <laughs> and however traveled I am, I had not been to Armenia yeah. or that part of the world yet. I did have to look on a map. And I said, okay and I got on a call with the guy and you know he was already in his late 40s 
he had built you know, a handful of small startups in the software space. A few of them had sold. They were all local European, you know, from Armenia, all self-funded. A kind of a very traditional business model for European sure. entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he had um, started building an app that was going to create tools for content. And basically his, his idea and his vision was we can empower a billion people to be creators and to express creativity. I wanted to be a cartoonist as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, clearly uh, I chose not to take that path because I didn't <laughs> want to be poor and I wasn't good enough at it. But but it was it was kind of an odd dynamic where I, you know, my, my father paid for college says you can't do art. That was the one caveat. If I paid for your high school and your college, there's no more art. But when I came to America at 16, I had to give up my drive and my passion around the arts. And that was a trade-off that I made. But to 30 years later, be the guy whose desire through software and, and now the mobile era uh, this was a mobile first product to empower, you know, and the vision a billion people sure. to create content and to be creative and express creativity. It was like, oh my goodness, like yeah. I, I have to, so I went to Armenia. Yeah. I spent 48 hours over there. It takes 24, it takes 25 hours to get to Armenia. I spent 48 hours over there with him and we decided to work together. There was a couple of months of phone calls and exchanges and, and ultimately now this is about six and a half, seven years ago, 2014, I, I decided to join uh, Havanis and, and I was the first hired executive. And basically we, you know, the, the cap table was set at that time and the 490 was set at that time. And I, uh, out of the U.S., built a San Francisco office and we went on to uh, see great success obviously the, the app has over over a billion users now it's um, crazy. which is you know it's, it's basically considered you know the largest apps in the world for its generation and you know creators and, and users and uh, people create you know uh, animation drawings yeah. collages and a lot of photo editing so it's a bit like a multi-purpose software app around uh, content creation and editing extremely successful it's global um, I opened offices in LA San Francisco and in Japan Tokyo and, and China now there's 650 employees I think 600 employees in the, uh, the company it's amazing. And we have great backers like Sequoia and DCM. You know, what was interesting about it was there was a, a culture dynamic. We kept engineers in Armenia. Mm-hmm. We built all the other departments, product, UX, UI, marketing, monetization, legal, corp, and the U.S., Okay. Um, and so we were already decentralized, which is today's world. So we yes. were way ahead of that, yes. of the COVID era. I traveled over a million miles in four years. I would go either work out in New York uh, on a weekly basis, work out of China uh, three days a week. I never left my kids for more than three or four days in a single week in, in four years. I made it a principle that I would always put Let's my kids back. to bed and always come back. And so I would go to China for three days and uh, go to right Japan back. and come right back. But we gradually built a, a business by executing, as I call it, getting on base. You know, we were focused on a quarterly basis on trying to achieve our goals more than just selling grand plan business to VCs and, and jacking up our, our uh, valuation. What that allows us to do is, is to uh, be profitable very early on and gradually migrate to our other products and services and, and monetization. We were in advertising that we went into virtual currency and basically using microtransactions to, to buy things. And then we went into MRR, monthly recurring serv- uh, revenues, and then ultimately paid a subscription model for users on a monthly or yearly basis. And, and now the company is moving into uh, small business as well as prosumers. It was a mobile first product. You know, we, I think Havana's and the management team and the employees and still control 60% of the company. Oh my God, that's so, awesome. So yeah, it's a very rare use case where I think a combined $55 million of capital was raised. So if you look on a proportion of business to all the other billion user apps out there that are consumer centric on the, in content space, most of them have raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. Um, and so it, it's a really unique situation where there's culture involved, there's international offices involved, there's international markets and growth involved. Like we were early in India, we had 55, 60 million, 100 million users in India before... <laughs> 
TikTok was there, right? Yeah. So, and then people were like, no, we don't care about India. Now people are valuing India, they're valuing China. I went to China uh, two years into me being at the company and started progressively building rapports and relationships and trying to establish. We opened an actual office in China. Sure. I hired Chinese employees, you know, successfully so and, and empowered them. And we drove growth in China. We were in one of the largest foreign apps in the consumer side in China that was nice. not banned. So we saw a lot of success and Hovhannes uh, continued. And he and I had a rapport where um, I basically was chief business officer and oversaw all the operational aspects of the company from marketing to uh, growth to hiring different departments, monetization, legal finance. I basically headed finance departments for several years. And so again, it goes back to the accumulations of skills that I developed over all the okay. other startups. Absolutely. Right? Like it, it was an overnight success. You know, Pixar is an overnight success. My success is, a th- you know, a 30 years in the making success. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just about, you know, realizing there's no end goal as much as there is an experience of life. I think, you know, when I was in banking my first year as an analyst, David Weinstein was my managing director at Sumitomo Bank in 1998. I went to him and I said, what would it take for you to retire? And he said, 10 million in cash. This was 1998. Um, so that's maybe it's worth 20 million now or something like that in the bank. And uh, I said, 10 million in cash. He goes, yeah. And I go, and he looks at me, you know, a little bit like, like you know, why are you being demeaning? You know, uh, and again, I was not good at my job <laughs> as an analyst. And he goes, I go, what's your number? I go, 310 million. <laughs> I'm this 22-year-old kid who barely made it through Sumitomo Mitsui. <laughs> and I'm like, 310 million. And he looks at me like, you're such an <laughs> asshole. Like, and I, and I in my it. mind, it was just the idea that I was going to build a billion dollar company. And I was going to own 30% because I had looked at, you know, yes, uh, yes, Bill yes, Gates yes, and all these yes. guys. And like, well, how do you get diluted down? And where do you end up? And 20 or 30% of a billion dollar company was 300 million. So it wasn't the number. The number is just a reflection of the idea that yeah. I was going to build a billion dollar company. I was going to be an entrepreneur. That is what I wanted to do. And during my time at Sumitumo, I spent more time day trading and writing business plans than I did actually <laughs> doing anything good at my job. And ultimately, when the 98 Asia crisis took place, and they started downsizing inside Sumitomo Mitsui. My boss, David, was like, you should look for another job. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, we're not going to keep you. Uh, which led me to Enron. And so in failures and in rejection, I always found outlets for opportunities. Uh, when I got to Enron, even though I was supposed to be a, day tra- a trader for energy, I ended up going to the corporate uh, strategy e- uh, e-business team. Yeah. And so because I'd written all these e-commerce plans sure. during my day job, yeah. they were like, oh, this guy's pretty entrepreneurial and he has ideas around e-business and, yeah. and, and commerce and he's very analytical uh, and thinking about markets and dynamics and so we should put him on the strategy team and so I ended up in this very exclusive team of, of analysts that work directly with the management of Enron and the management of, of the departments of Enron EES you know uh, broadband services I mean the, the top of the crop top 15 people of Enron wow. when I was like the biggest peon and edu- <laughs> I was the only non-Ivy League person they hired that year at Enron and yet these moments of having developed skill sets and, and doing things slightly differently and differentiating myself allowed me to ultimately differentiate you know and, and showcase uh, a talent and other skills and other driving and no one else had. nobody else had um, and so I would say this also is differentiate you know if you're just another Ivy League you know s- superstar like there's a million of you I mean I don't I don't want to be condescending there's nothing wrong with good education sure absolutely not but there is something to be said about somebody there's a reason why there's something that the stories of success come from the guy who came from the hood that guy had to work hard to develop skill sets to overcome yes. not only where he started but to outperform everybody else in the end there's a lot to be had. If you're struggling today, look at that as an advantage. If, you're a start, if your starting point is behind somebody else's, look at that as an advantage. Because your ability to deal with chaos, your ability to deal with pain, your ability to overcome will be significant advantages and tools for you to use as you get older in the competitive world of corporate America or of a startup. Awesome, Wilson. Oh, my God. Listen, such amazing advice and just life lessons. I mean, business lessons, entrepreneurship. 
I, I wanted to thank you for your time. Absolutely. Greatly, greatly appreciate everything you've been sharing with us today. Wilson, before we wrap up, sure. let me ask you something. If you were to share one bit of advice, what would that one advice be? I go back to the original premise we talked about, which is relentlessly commit to purpose. You just have to believe in what it is that you're seeking to achieve and do the work on a daily basis. You know, whatever your circumstances are, it doesn't matter. Your circumstances, either use them or it's an excuse. Don't make excuses. Be self-accountable. Like every day you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Nobody's going to do it for you. That's right. When I go run every day now, nobody's going to run for me. Nobody's going to climb a mountain for me. Nobody's going to, you know, climb the seven summits for me. I either choose to do it or don't. You do not try to do things. You choose to do things, right? So relentlessly commit to purpose. And your purposes don't have to be 20 years ahead of the game. Don't grand vision plan things that are unachievable from day one or you will set yourself up for failure. Try to get on base. I always say, hey, it's like it's like scoring in baseball. You know, if you're stealing bases, it's all good. If you punt to get to first base, it's all good. Then you got second base, third base, and you got home base. Everything is in a home run. Life isn't a home run. That's right. All right. So get on base. As long as you're getting on base, as the guy who used to coach the San Francisco, the Oakland team, right? It, it, it was about getting on base. He built yep. a whole team about That's getting right. on base. You will go further in life by getting on base by thinking you can swing home runs all day long. Thank you so much. Valuable advice, Wilson. And to all our listeners out there, thank you for being a follower here at T20E World. And I, once again, just want to say thank you, Wilson. Absolutely. Really, I'm humbled and, and it's just I'm glad been, we get to meet in person. I absolutely am. And I'm excited. And uh, this was just fantastic. It was really awesome. So to all our listeners, T20E World, this is Wilson Kriegel and Hugo. And we are checking out.